Hello, I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Insider, PW's podcast that takes you inside some of the biggest stories and books in the world of publishing. Today, we are talking with Tana French, best-selling mystery writer and author of The Witch Elm. Hello, Tana. So glad you could join us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. So, uh, this is a big occasion for you. After six Dublin Murder Squad mysteries, this is your first standalone. What, what inspired you to take this turn? Well, I never want to get caught in the trap of writing the same book over and over. And I think if you're writing within the same genre where the framework is fairly fixed, and especially within the same series world where you've set up certain parameters and boundaries that have to stay put, you are, there is a temptation to keep writing the, book, the same book over and over. So I decided stepping back from the world of the Dublin Murder Squad would probably make me less likely to do that. And also, I had looked at the process of a criminal investigation from the detective standpoint six times now, but I kept thinking about all the other viewpoints that are involved, like you've got witnesses, you've got suspects, you've got perpetrators, you've got victims, and all of these people have to have a very different angle on what the criminal investigation looks like. Like, for the detective... This is, uh, all the procedural stuff is somewhere where they feel very at home. They're driving it, they're controlling it, it's a source of strength, it's a way of reimposing order on chaos. But from all those other standpoints, it has to be exactly the opposite. Like, you're completely out of control, this alien, incomprehensible and probably very terrifying thing has basically turned your life upside down and you have no power to direct where it will go or what will happen and you don't know where you stand within it. And I wanted the chance to give a voice to some of those other viewpoints and Toby Hennessy, the narrator in The Witch Elm, is at various points in the book. He's all of those. So let's talk a little bit about Toby. And it's true, you, you, you've, you're, we've kind of taken a, uh, a diversion from the, what we think of a, a, like a, a road-weary, uh, learned, wise and detective, and, yeah. uh, and, and kind of turn the attention to Toby, who's this young, likable man in his 20s. Tell us a little bit about him, and um, just for our listeners, just set the stage a little bit. Well, Toby's basically a happy-go-lucky, cheerful guy, 28. He has always basically led a charmed life. He's got a job in PR that he likes, a girlfriend he loves, good friends. Everything in his life has always gone well, up until the night when it doesn't anymore. He surprises some burglars in his apartment, and they beat, beat him up pretty badly and leave him for dead. And when he comes round, he's got traumatic brain injury, which leaves him with, you know, trouble with speaking, trouble with memory, a limp, and he's also got post-traumatic stress disorder. So his whole life is a very different place, and not only that, but to himself, living in, within his mind is a very different place and within his body. So he kind of retires to the family uh, home where his old uncle is dying of brain cancer to sort of care for his uncle and lick his wounds. But while he's there uh, and starting to recover pieces of himself bit by bit, a skull turns up down the trunk of an old witch elm tree in the family garden. And all of a sudden, he's in the middle of a murder investigation, and he has no idea why or what to do about it. And so here he is living with a relative who has brain cancer, and he himself, given the injuries that he sustained, doesn't have full memory or has a spotty memory. How does he work within that, and what adjustments does he make well, he doesn't adjust very well, frankly. He's used to the world being basically a very 
easy place to live in. For him, it has always been easy and benign. And the idea of, of day-to-day tasks being extremely difficult, of, you know, making himself an, a fried egg being an incredibly difficult task because organizationally he's really not able for a lot of things. Or the idea of his memory refusing to come up with the word instant is just it's horrifying to him. It's, it's an outrage against everything that should be, against the way nature should be. And he doesn't have a very easy time coping with that. A lot of what I was thinking about in this book is, is the self and what happens when our concept of self is shattered or damaged or shifted in some way, how we cope with that. And obviously his uncle's going through the same process in a, in a much more complete and terminal way. But he copes with it very differently. Hugo has a line about how we we get used to being ourselves, and it takes some great upheaval to crack that surface and force us to find out what's within. And he ends up using the fact that his who he is is disintegrating as a way to find something else that he never knew was within him, whereas Toby doesn't quite manage to do that. He's struggling to find some new place he can inhabit within this unfriendly and and unreliable world, but he never quite finds a place. Do you think in, in writing this standalone, in, in writing The Witch Elm, you were able to go into these kinds of explorations on identity and human nature that you may not have been able to in your previous works? There's definitely an element of, of new space opening up when you write a standalone, because with the Dublin Murder Squad, there were certain things I could and couldn't do. You know, there were characters and frameworks that I had put in place, whereas with this, absolutely anything was open. I think the genre is less and less of a limitation these days. People are pushing the boundaries. You're able to explore the big themes like identity and um, where people stand within the world, all these big things. I think you're just as able to explore them within a, a genre series as within a standalone. I don't think that was the big difference of the standalone. The big difference for me was that sense of uncharted territory where where absolutely anything could happen, and I had to figure out the frameworks from scratch. And how did you go about doing that? Do you you, you have an outline? Do you have an idea uh, that you you outline, or is it something that you discover as you write? I'm very much in the camp of discovering as I write. I have a lot of awe and a certain amount of envy for those writers who have an outline before they start because, you know, they know there's a book in there. They know that all the jigsaw pieces will, in fact, fit together into a full picture. I just, I don't work that way. I have a strong sense of the narrator at the beginning. I have a core location, like in this case, Toby's ancestral home, the Ivy House, and I had a very basic premise. And I sort of just jump in and follow my nose and try and figure my way out through the book. I think it's because I'm coming from an acting background. So for me, it's all about character. Plot comes out of character. So I have to write the characters for a while before I can figure out who would do what and why and to whom. And it makes for an awful lot of rewriting because when I start, I don't know who done it, never mind why. So when I discover that, a third or half of the way through, I might have to go back and rewrite large chunks to make that fit in with what I've set up. But, I mean, it's the only way that works for me. I've got to stick with it. Tell us, then, uh, what happens once Toby discovers this? Is it a skull or is it a, a, a head under the witch elm or the trunk of the witch elm? Well, it's a skull, which turns out to be um, attached to a full skeleton. Um, well, obviously, that brings 
the detectives descending on the house. They find themselves in the middle of a murder investigation. And, of course, anyone who had access to the witch elm, which means Toby and his family, has got to be in the lens of the investigation. And for him, that prompts a huge process of reassessing his whole past, because this skull is a few years old, and the detectives start asking questions about that time, kind of roughly 10 years ago, when it must have got there. And this is a time when Toby and his two cousins, Susanna and Leon, who are his age, were spending a lot of time in the Ivy House. That was sort of their idyllic childhood paradise, where they played as little kids and you know, made forts and mud holes and had teenage parties and first kisses, all this glorious stuff in Toby's mind. But as the detectives start asking questions, and as he starts asking questions, trying to figure out what he's in the middle of and why, he starts to find out that from Susanna's perspective and Leon's, the Ivy House and their past may not in fact have been the place that he thought they were. He's having to reassess all of that and realize that there, is, there are entire other layers of realities. His is not the only one that exists or existed, and he's having to take those on board, those alternative realities, in a way that he never did before. So at a point where his sense of self is already destabilized, his sense of his own past is becoming destabilized too. I want to touch up a little bit on that. Uh, we, we say that in our review, a starred review, by channeling the story through a narrator who's unfamiliar with the very worst parts of human nature, uh, French, you, uh, is able to put her thematic questions at center stage. We say that you carefully build Toby up and then strip every part of him away, and the result is a chilling interrogation of privilege and the transformative effects of trauma. I know it's a long uh, intro to a question, but, I, I, but, but can you speak on that a little bit? Well, yeah, I was thinking a lot when I when I came up with this book about luck and its relationship to empathy and how if we're too lucky in some area of life, it can kind of stunt empathy. It can prevent us from having a real awareness that other people who have been less lucky in whatever area this is may not be having the same experience of life on a day-to-day basis. They are not living in the same world. And it can stop us from being aware of the reality of this. Just to take the example I'm using, my most obvious one, I had a happy, loved childhood. I was lucky. But that meant that when I was, say, a teenager, if somebody would tell me something about a really terrible childhood, there was a small part of my mind that would go, I can't really have been quite that bad. They must be exaggerating a little, surely. Now, not because I thought that they were lying, not because I didn't believe the person, but because this was so outside my frame of reference that I just couldn't take it on board as reality. And I got older and I copped on to myself and realized that my reality is not the only one. But it got me thinking about what if you've got somebody who has been lucky in every way. He has drawn the high card all along. He's a straight white male. He's from an affluent family, loving, stable family. He's good looking. He's intelligent. He's physically and mentally healthy. What's that going to do with his sen- to his sense of empathy? What's that going to do to his ability to realize that other people are living very different realities just on a day-to-day mundane basis? And then what happens if all of a sudden he is not holding the high card in every way. What if, for example, his physical and mental health are taken away from him, and he's having to see himself and the world from an entirely different perspective, and he's never been prepared for this. Like, most of us are, in some way or another, have not drawn the high card. Most of us are vulnerable in one way or another, and we have warnings of that as we reach, you know, 
probably not even adulthood, but as we reach our teen years, we start to realize that there are ways in which we are not at the top of the totem pole and ways in which we are vulnerable. And we all have that moment, the horror and devastation of that moment of realizing that someone in power is treating you as less than human purely because of what you are, whether it be because you're a woman, because you're not white, because you're gay, because you're mentally not healthy, for whatever reason, someone is treating you as less than human. And it's a devastating moment, but most of us come to it with some degree of warning. And Toby comes to it with no warning at all. And I started thinking about what that would do if the world transforms from benign to untrustworthy, basically in the blink of an eye. And at the same time, the world for him has become untrustworthy, but yet he's also uh, just sent in the middle of this murder investigation. Right, which is not a very trustworthy place to be. (laughs) Again, he doesn't know where he is in this, just as he doesn't know where he is in anything else. He doesn't know, is he a witness? Is he a suspect? And as his own mind is so unreliable, he starts to wonder if he could even be the murderer. And he has a need to take back some kind of control, some kind of agency within all of this. He's been in a position where he's been pushed around. Other people have been making the decisions, calling the shots. And he figures that if he can turn himself from all of these other roles into the detective, if he can become the detective, then he regains some kind of control, some kind of agency, some sense of self. So he goes digging, trying to find out what happened. And of course, it doesn't go exactly to plan. I want to talk a little bit about your settings. Uh, your novels uh, uh, have all been set in Dublin, this one as well. You've lived there for nearly two decades. What is it about Dublin that, that captures your imagination uh, in order, and then wanting to, to write about it um, and set your scenes there? I mean, obviously there's one of familiarity for you, but what do you find, uh, I don't want to use the word magical, but just, just fascinating about Dublin? Actually, it's nearly three decades since I was a teenager, but I think partly it is. It's a familiarity. It's the only city that I know well enough to get the tiny little textures and nuances that make it real, I think. But there's also the fact that I'm very interested in places and how they're interwoven into our relationship with the past what charge we give to places, what memories become attached to them that make them intrinsic to our past and our sense of self. And Dublin and Ireland in general is a place that has a very fraught and interesting relationship with the past because we've got seven centuries of English colonization and not benign colonization in many ways, which only ended a 100 years ago. And so you've got this tension where there's an element of dealing with past trauma, which is built into the culture, but there's also an element of wanting to leave it all behind, forget it, ignore the past, pretend it never happened, we are starting fresh, la la la, I can't hear you, the rest of it never happened. And that's evident in everything from you know, the architecture, where there's all this beautiful Georgian architecture from when the, the British were in power, and then there's the more modern stuff, which is much of it absolutely hideous in a way that I can barely even describe, because it's a reaction against the proportions and grace and elegance of the British architecture. It's, it's a way of saying, we don't have to do it this way anymore. So everything within Dublin, when you walk down a Dublin street, you're seeing that past made flesh, and you're seeing that 
fraught and tense relationship with the past made flesh. And I like that. I find that really interesting. And so where would this set, where the witch elm would grow? Uh, that house is probably somewhere in the Rathmines, Rathmines, Harold's Cross area, somewhere out there. They have that kind of house. But I don't have a specific house in mind. Mm. So you you just mentioned you, you're coming to writing from a performer's point of view. You were an actor, performer, before turning to writing. What made you turn to writing, and what satisfies your creativity by being a writer rather than a performer? I mean, I miss acting. I loved acting. I love the, the teamwork element of it. Like when you're acting, if you get one of those days where just nothing is working, then there's a director, there's the other person in the scene who'll give you a hand out of that. Whereas if I'm writing and, and I'm having one of those days where nothing works, it's just me. I've got to get myself unstuck. Um, I kind of came to it by accident almost. I like, you know, I was in theater, gigs never line up neatly. You've always got, if you're lucky, a few weeks in between. And I had a few weeks off in between shows, and I went off to do an archaeological dig, because I've always been fascinated by archaeology. I love it. And uh, there was a wood not far from the dig. And I kept thinking, that would be a great place for kids to play. And then one day, which I, I suppose is the difference between normal people and mystery writers, I thought... What if three kids ran in there to play and only one of them came out and he had no memory of what had happened to the other two? Like, what would that do to you growing up, knowing that you've got the solution to that mystery in your mind, but you cannot find it? And then what if he became a detective and a murder case drew him back to that wood? So I scribbled it on a piece of paper. I went off to do the next show. I forgot the whole thing. But I found the piece of paper about a year later when I was moving flat, like under phone bills with coffee stains on it. And I really wanted to know what would happen in that story. And, I mean, nobody else was going to write it for me. The only way I was going to find out was by going in there and writing it. I didn't think I could write an entire book because I had never tried before, but I figured I could probably write a scene and then maybe another scene and then, whoa, look, I've got a whole chapter. And suddenly I found myself turning down acting work because I wanted to finish this. And if you know any actors, you know, they do not turn down acting work. And it suddenly hit me that I was really serious about this and it, I really wanted to finish this and to finish it as well as I possibly could. So going back to your book, which other character than Toby did you really find surprisingly enjoyable to inhabit? If not enjoyable, uh, did you just really... Uh, just immerse yourself in uh, the uh, in the character. I liked writing all of them. I I like writing characters who are as far from me as possible, which I think is the acting instinct again. You know, I get to be me all day long. But the point of like the point of the arts for me, whether as a, a as audience or as creator, is that you get that chance to see the world through somebody else's eyes for few minutes, few hours, few days, you're seeing the world entirely differently, which I think goes back to the empathy thing. Again, that's the arts are an incredible, um, more than, it, it's more than they inspire empathy. They grow it within us. They teach us that other people's realities are there and real. And that's, that's what I love most is those moments. So I think I probably enjoyed most writing Hugo, Toby's uncle, because he's so far from me. He is an older man, he's at the end of his life, and he's got a very solitary, peaceful, settled life where he's arranged it all in accordance with what he needs and what he's interested in. And he's 
It's got all of its own peaceful rhythms. And that was very interesting to write. Somebody who has got his life settled exactly like he wants it, and then he's dealing with an upheaval to it that he knows will be the last. So yeah, that he was a lot of fun to write. So what's the plan for you next? Are you returning to the Dublin Murder Squad, or do you think you'll write another standalone? I, it's another standalone next. I, I'm, I haven't left the Dublin Murder Squad behind, but I think it's probably good to take a few years off it and come back to it with fresh eyes. It takes away some of that risk of writing the same thing over and over. So it's another standalone. I'm still at the stage where I'm like bouncing ideas around, and I probably can't say anything remotely coherent about it. But the one thing I want, right, is I'd like to write something relatively short, because I write great big doorstops of books. I just have long ideas. And I'm in all of those writers who can condense what they write into something so tight where every word counts, every word carries huge weight. And they get as much done in, you know, 250 pages as I'm getting done in 400 odd. So I would really like to see if I can do something like that. You know, if you look at, uh, at Daniel Woodrow with Winter's Bone or at, I'm just reading Charles Porter's True Grit, stuff like that where it's so succinct and condensed and it packs so much punch. Now, I don't know if I can do anything like that, but I'd really like to try. Well, we look forward to seeing what you do come out with next. Thanks. <laughs> We've been talking with Tana French, the author of The Witch Elm, which is in bookstores today. Tana, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you again for having me on. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. This is PW Insider. Please be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes, and we'll see you next week.